Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Machine. You may know Machine from his work with Lamb of God, Armor for Sleep, For Your Strong, Clutch, King Crimson, and a hell of a lot more. It's really astounding. You should take a look at his discography over on his Noise Creators profile. After you listen to this, there's also a Spotify playlist and a whole other bunch of biographical information about him. We have an awesome, thorough chat about his feelings on recording and really get into a lot of interesting stuff I don't think has been covered on this podcast before. It's a rad talk. Before I let you get into that, I want to remind you that I have a new book out. It is called Processing Creativity, The Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With. It's a book I worked for four years on. It's all about how you make music that you like and what goes into that, and as well, all the ways that your music could fall into pitfalls and not come out good. I tried to put a lot of thought into this about this, and if you enjoy this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy this book. It is out on all formats, including physical book, ebook, and audiobook this week. Please check it out. Without a further ado, here's Machine and me talking about making records. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Um, I've got my trusty old Shure SM7 and it's going through, not going, just, it's not too much. It's going through a distressor. Of course, before that, it's an Aurora Mic Pre, which is uh, the best of the best of the Neve clones. It basically- Oh, you're is, liking that one. I haven't tried those. A Neve, you know, with a, with a different name on it. Hit a little of my distressor and then that's it. SM7 is a mic, man, but there's one mic I use on vocals the most. Hands down, it's SM7. Nice. So is that more for them being able to hold it, or is that more just you loving the sound? Uh, both. Yes, you can hold it. You can. And then it's just, you know what it's about for me? Everything that I learn about recording, I sort of have this sort of uh, end game view. When I look at my mic collection, because I've done it so long, I look at what does this mic give me? I know my end game so much. I know like when I learn something new, I learn about what it's going to actually sound like in the mix. Like, you know, like what it can become, what it can do. That's when you really know a piece of gear, you know? Cause you know, putting a mic on something and listening to it solo, 
a mic could sound bigger and better and cooler. And then you put it in the mix and it's and it's and there things are compressed and things are done to it. And the way it sits in the mix doesn't sound as much badass. And mm-hmm. sometimes cheaper mics or these classic drum mics are, are around forever because it's the way they translate through into the final product. It's like so. And to answer your question, SM7, it's used so often because it goes anywhere. It packs mm-hmm. mids. It's not, uh, you know, if I have like the, if I have like a mellow, beautiful girl, a, a rich voice, sure, I'll, I'll use a bigger condenser mic for vocals. But if not, the SM7 does anything. Like it mm-hmm. distort the, the fuck out of it. It distorts real cool. If you yep. want to do this, but it, you know, it goes anywhere. If you want it to sound big and, you know, full, you can get close to it and do that. So, so it's a, it's like, yeah, it's the, it's the dope tool for the end game. Nice. I I like that end game thing. So with that, that knowing where you're going to go, tell me where you came from and your background in music. I was a kid playing guitar in high school and um, I was really, really lucky to kind of basically be around with the birth of hip hop music. Mm. My earliest, earliest memories was the Sugar Hill Gang coming out, and they were from my hometown. Sorry about that beep. So, yeah, it was uh, the Sugar Hill Gang. I said a hip, hop, hip. Remember? Yeah, classic uh, stuff. Yeah, and they were they came from my town, Teaneck, New Jersey. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you were from Teaneck. Okay. Yeah, so I was a bit, and this is what I was when I was like a baby. But so I feel so blessed because. You know, you know, my parents saw the birth of the Beatles and whatever, and it's like, well, what do I got? Oh no, you know, I was there for the birth of hip hop, and it. I was, you know, then going on into high school as a guitar player, but I was very aware of hip hop. I went to a school that birthed a number of hip hop stars, like Dos Effects in high school, and I, I, so I was very into hip hop. And um, how did I get started in music was your question. So so here's this guitar player kid, and he's very, very inspired by this new genre, hip-hop. And I just always thought how, oh, man, it's really cool when I, like, play hip-hop music and rock my fucking Eddie Van Halen skills over it, you know, like, and, and how cool that was. So I started just getting really into how, really early on, like, how can I do funkier hip hop inspired stuff and sampling stuff with organic instruments, guitars and real drums and blah, blah, blah. That is really the the secret to my success. I'm very mm. different than a lot. You know, I'm considered mostly a heavy producer, but I'm very different because I didn't follow anything near a traditional path. I never worked in a studio. I never worked under anybody. That's not, by the way, for people listening to this, that's not a good thing. I would say definitely work under people. But this is my story. I just was a guy that, you know, I was very lucky to get (laughs) my first sampler. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're in college, dude, and and you they give you that first credit card, like because you're in college, it's like this tiny about maybe two thousand dollar your your whole spending. Mm -hmm. I got that and I blew the whole thing on my first sampler. Oh, it's funny. And my dad is big time big time musician who comes up and says what what do you do what is this toy what what do you mm-hmm. you young machine you can't <laughs> you can't waste credit cards on toys like this like no dad this is a sampler this is a musical instrument dude 
and this is going to, I'm going to do something with this one day. So I, this is really what, this is how I got in. I really was very cutting edge as a kid, figuring out how to sync, you know, beats and sampling and synths along with organic instruments because it wasn't easy. You didn't have your laptop. You didn't have like Apple mm-hmm. loops and stuff like that. No, you had a sequencer. It was just a MIDI sequencer. It fired off things. You had to have tape, which was expensive, and you had to put sync on it, and you had to record your live things to there and sync your computer firing off your samples. And there wasn't even libraries. You had to make your own samples. And that was my thing. And that started a band that was based on that thing, you know? It was really difficult. I was the same world. And, like, knowing how to do all that stuff, um, I always say it makes uh, these days feel like you're playing the video game on easy mode. Totally. But at that time, I had this really important, unique skill. Mm. Yeah, no one knew how to do that. So naturally what starts happening is, as I'm trying to hang out with bands and whoever I can as a kid, work my way around, I start doing remixes. So they got really cool and oh yeah and prior to that i would just do anywhere i could i just do local hip-hop sessions like literally gotcha come in so so you say you're doing remixes how are you getting into that in this day in that day and age right so i really had my programming chops up you know and Mm -hmm. a lot of people did and i could do this like i said i could do this with analog instruments so I'm going to toot your horn. Not a lot of people did when we compare it to now. Like now everybody can do a computer. That was insanely hard. You needed to have hundreds of hours under your belt to really understand how to do that stuff back then. And thanks. So so I would do my own music, which was kind of sort of Nine Inch Nails inspired and but more hip hop, but but actually more more hip hop, but like heavy tones, incredible dance, dance beats, incredible hip hop beats. Record companies would be fascinated with what I did. And then go, we're going to hang out with you, but we don't know how to market you right now. This this is this is seven years before Limp Bizkit came out, you know, when, you know or, or all the rap rock stuff and all that. So they go, would you would you remix one of our artists and apply what you do? So I not, so again, totally organically, I naturally just given remixes. One of those was two white zombie remixes for a huge white zombie record. Six nice. Which went uh over definitely over platinum that's right you know so there it was that's what that was my little niche i would take instead of taking dance songs and doing remixes i would take heavy bands which i understood as as a guitar player and i would take heavy bands and apply beats and do like you know dance hip-hop elements to those things there was i had my really cool niche so people people knew who i was you know Mm -hmm. they knew i was cool like i think i think if it was modern day times Right. And I'm doing this kind of thing. You would probably have called me a DJ right now. But oh, yeah, yeah. I, for, I forgot that that was a big thing. Right, that like you wouldn't, if you knew how to use a sampler, you, wouldn't you were for some reason DJ called a DJ. Then, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. say that a DJ was this guy spun records and went wiki, mm-hmm. wiki, wiki. <laughs> <laughs> so and then and then naturally again. So, so Jesse, dude, I so basically I was a record producer. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I didn't really at that point really understand what a record producer was i just was one you know i -hmm. I was doing this and i was doing this for my friends bands and i was doing these hip-hop sessions and like creating a whole track in one day programming dudes would just come in with like written lyrics and maybe one record to sample one thing and then i would add beats and it would all be mixed in one day and i had totally had like the ghetto pass in in this shady parts of jersey you know my little eminem story right i like it was really cool and um so so naturally what happened was is um i had no plans on being a record producer 
Like, you know what? That's a lie. That's a lie, Jesse. I knew that when I was an old guy, I'd be a record producer. So I was like, isn't that <laughs> old guy is in the studio? Like, the- <laughs> so I, so, you know, I'm doing my own tracks. So, and then, and then I had a, a, a friend that was at a producer management firm and greatest friend to this day, Paul Adams. And he became my first manager. But at that time he was working for a producer management firm and a small firm and a brand new artist was signed to uh, Richard Branson got to start back up a label, a major label called V2 Records. And his mm. second signing was an artist called Kings of Infinite Space. And so basically it was like a Beck thing. It was like it was okay. it was one kid who wrote these great songs on his four track and there wasn't a band yet. So they needed someone that could fill in other band positions, like maybe play guitar, do all this programming, create create like a programming and organic thing like Beck and and fill in all those spots as a producer. The producer firm literally said, we don't we don't really have any of our producers that can do this, but there's this kid in New Jersey machine and he would he would kill it. He would just kill it. Mm. He's like, why don't you give him a call and see? So B2 Records, it was their second signing. B2 wow. Records that says, would you try this? Do three tracks. They sent they're they're from the UK. They sent them out for do three I did three tracks, slammed, got the record. I'm sitting there bartending while I'm doing my remixes and, and my little hip hop sessions. I'm offered a major, my first, a major label record, my first record to be a record producer, major label record. They loved it. Wow. And I was like, should I do this? Well, like I know I'm going to be a producer when I'm an old guy, but you know, and there are a lot of younger producers now, but there weren't them. Like, Oh yeah, totally. I actually debated, I laugh at now, I actually debated, should I do this? <laughs> yeah. And my friends at the bar, those bartending for like, you know, money. The friends were like, fuck, yeah, you should do this. So, okay, so I did it, and it was great. And then it was like the word was out about what this kid could do. And then there was literally another record waiting and another record waiting and another record waiting. And I have been doing that to this day. Like I've, That's wild. It just, it never stopped. Yeah. And one of those, one of the, like the second record I did was so important so cool it was a, a band called pitch shifter the record was I, I remember that record well I, I always say about that band um still to this day it's probably been 20 years i've never seen more stickers of a band around new york city than that band 20 years ago cool that was and that was my second record it was on geffen they just got signed the prodigy was blowing up all over the mm-hmm. um and they were part of that whole scene and um here it was it was a punk rock record with drum and bass beats Right. That's what it was. Yep, totally. and I did that for White Zombie. That was my mix mm-hmm. for White Zombie. So this pitch shifter band I'm given says, well, we should work with this guy, Machine. And that's one of the ones I just want to say, like, I'm really proud of when I look back because, I mean, I don't want to say like it, it in a way it was like my version of Refuse Shape of Punk to come. It was like, you know, like mm. it was like it was that moment where it was cool, relevant. And it, was, it felt like that moment where like the whole record industry had to just stop for 10 minutes, 15 minutes and check this shit out. Not that it was going to mm. be the world's biggest record, but it was like, like when Refuse came out, like you had to say, wait a minute, we need to check this out. Yes. I think they definitely had a big, big yeah. crossover thing for sure. Yeah. So I, I look at that. It's such a special thing because of that. And, you know, and then I'm always chasing that. Like as a producer mm. now, whatever I do and we come up with concepts or most chasing to be able to do that. That's the ultimate thing for me on any degree of any level, you know, make a record that has 
little things different about it. My records sound different. They don't. I don't. I don't have a method. I, mm-hmm. I have various methods. I've been doing it a long time. I know all the methods. I've tried and failed with all of them, and I've learned. But yeah, and I just want to make you know, I want to make stuff that I worship when bands want to step outside of the box a little, make something that's huge and catchy, but we figure out together our own brand of doing it, our own niche, our own niches and things about doing that. And that's that's what I love. Very rad. So tell me about your studio that you built. Okay. Barn. So it, back in the day of making, you know, back in the day when there's huge budgets, I always had to go out to big, big studios, you know, to, for the for the labels to think the record was good, you had a shit ton of money. Make the mm. broke, and <laughs> and you know you you know I had my own little studio, but it was just for overdubs. Like so, when you're recording and tracking a band, you had to be at a big place. So I've been to all the big studios, and I'll just and also I'm you know like sort of as a I'm sort of a handyman and as a builder, I always sort of was very I took no I was very aware of design and how studios were built and why certain surfaces and certain things and certain things about studio I like the way they sound. Just that's a natural thing for me to, to do. So and some of my very, very, very favorite experiences were some of these barn studios, you know, mm. Ayersville, New York, like where a bad out of yeah. recorded. Was that, you know, like Longview Farms in Wales, infamous barn studio, Led Zeppelin recorded there and Annie Lennox and Queen and a million others. And um, but when I look back on all these studios I've been to, some of this the best feel good vibey experiences were being in these barn things. So I was like, and I was like, hey. Barn building is affordable. <laughs> mm. Building a barn is not is uh, is a, a good build, and it's super vibey. So, the, so that's what's that's what the machine shop is now. It's this epic, big, you know, A-frame, incredible environment with lots of windows out into into the country, lots of places outside to hang out, and um, it's a room that's basically designed for the way I work. I, I know mm. every not any producer could hire this as another student for themselves. It's it's the evolution of how. I like to work and it's it's all based on one incredibly great space that feels so good to play in. It feels good on your body. You know, you can the monitoring. I put so much effort into my monitoring so bands when they're tracking together, which I love, can hear each other so perfectly. And there's lots of little kind of unique trickeries of what I can do here because I built this is the first thing I got to build by ground up by my ideas and designs from all these things I gathered. So and then and yeah, it's just it's about being comfortable, creating and not being around too much things and being able to just feel good in a spot, play. Because, you know, when you play, when you sound good and it feels good on your body, you play good. Right. Agreed. You inspire good. It's like a drug. You know? So that's what this is designed. And there's lots of other tricks you, you want to ask about me. If you want to ask yes. me about, about this, I could I'll give it up. Uh, well, 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 tell me something that makes the studio unique. You're talking about how other producers, this is kind of your space designed around your workflow. Yep. Get into that a little bit for me. So it's this big open room, right? One thing that's really cool about my studio is the dog houses, right? So uh, outside of this barn, I have these miniature miniature little barns. They're independently suspended outdoor rooms. And those house guitar cabinets, Right. Completely removed. So they're completely isolated and or whatever I want to put through there. I could use those dog houses to reamp a vocal inside of a mix. It's just there's they're independent, suspended, r- incredibly tight rooms for guitar cabs right, or bass cabs. So 
a band can set up in this gorgeous open space, looking at each other while they play, feeling good. And we can have amps where we're taking two outputs. There's one sitting in the room, right, where they could take their headphones on or off. And it sounds like just a gorgeous room to play in. The other cab is in the doghouse where the microphones are, completely isolated. Hmm. And I know it's coming in. And then we can we can work up a song, work on it, and so on. And we can then, boom, the next second, we can say, let's track. And you pull out the cabinets that are blaring in the room. And all of a sudden, instantaneously, the whole room is just for the drum mics and the drum ambient mics. And all the guitars are still going outside, outside in the dog houses where they were always mic'd. And bam, you can cut, you can cut tracks. And right back and forth. That's a really cool thing. That's really rad. Yeah. So we have a saying on this podcast on like one side of the spectrum, you have like the Steve Albinis who are going to barely comment about like the take you made. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have like a John Feldman who's going to totally rewrite the bad songs. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum a lot of the time? Generally saying I'd be in, I would be really early in the middle. Mm-hmm. I do want to say it really just depends on what band because i you know i do array like i've done really brutal heavy bands like lamb of god and i've done hip-hop poppy bands like team class heroes and so it depends because i can't i'm not a shredder i i I appreciate this i appreciate some of the incredibly high highly proficient technical musicians i get to produce like king crimson basically a band of notorious legendary session musicians or lamb of god or so i can't i can't pick up a guitar and shred or pick up something i always have i'm really good at taking all that progressiveness and sneaking in the melody and sneaking in the pop and sneaking in the things that people connect with that's why i work mm. well with them but i can't per se write with them i can i direct like a great movie director i direct the emotion of them and i direct you know like a um, but then another band I can write more. I can write more with a band that's just more straight up rock and roll, or something that has more hip hop elements. Um, I can do more writing in that department. Nice. And so, so let's get into the diversity that you work with. I, I, I have been familiar with your discography, but this morning when I was doing my prep, it really, really struck me. Uh, and I just think there's also it gets rarer and rarer that people are diverse, and it is insane how diverse your catalog is. Like the idea that you've worked with King Crimson to a pitch shifter to an Every Time I Die and Four Years Strong and Fallout Boy onto like bands that are really electronic and like gridded and then really like. I don't want to, I hate using the term overproduced, but it's what people connect with, with having a lot of production to bands that are super, super raw. Like, I call that swinging for the fences. Yeah, I've got, nice. I, I've wanted to be Mutt Lang before. Nice. But, but you also do stuff that's really, really raw and stripped yeah, I, down. Yeah. You know, it's like, listen, I want to tell you, and for people maybe thinking about getting into this field, you know, I probably, I might have, I might be richer if I stuck to one thing I was good at. I really advise that to bands creatively. I realized it's a lot of people. I stuck to one one thing and marketed myself thing. But I'm that's not for me. I I understand music. I understand music in the way it connects to people. And that's really my biggest skill. And truly speaking, I can't believe I'm saying this, but all I am is a wannabe Rick Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that. I like no, that. Though. No. I, I am too. I am Rick too. Doesn't, Rick doesn't. No, people know. Rick doesn't touch gear, by the way. And I touch yes. gear. I touch a lot of gear. But I just want, I'm, I really am. My fantasy, my fantasy achievement is to, is, I just don't want to be Rick Rubin. 
<laughs> I want to be able to get it get it right. I want to be able to understand the culture and the sociological, the way audiences think and what emotionally attaches them to this style of music and figure that out, crack that code. Then I want to go over here to this heavy thing or whatever and crack that code. And that is that's really, really what gets me going. It's really excited to be able to, to, to challenge myself to be able to do that. And um, and that's just being an incredible sociologist of music. Meet, you know, sociologists meeting understand the culture and the emotions of what groups of people are feeling as they relate to beats, feel, lyrics, messages, and get it right. Talk to a band, aim at aim at a thing and get it right. And that is the secret to Rick Rubin. He is the master of that. Yes. I, 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 a thousand percent agree. Gear because he's the world's best sociologists sociologist of music it's funny like in my new book uh one of the early feedbacks i've got was like man you sure quote rick rubin a lot i'm like it's basically like writing a book about christianity and quoting jesus like you know yeah. you're gonna do that it's jesse jesse i you know just one little in preparing for this mm -hmm. podcast i listen to your podcast <laughs> it's a little scary how much we have in common by the way I, I, I like that. Well, we're from a, from a similar generation. It sounds like we, you and I came from a similar thing of hip hop and dance being brought into rock. So I, I think that that's, that that might be some of it. Right. So let's get back to you and away from Rick Rubin for a second. So do you, uh, do you do a thing in the pre-production? Like describe to me what it's like when, how you're figuring out what to do with the band. Yes. I'm very big on I'm very big on this, by the way. I'm very big on pre-production. I'm very big on uh, meeting a band and talking about music and talking about concepts. You know, before we start, you know, it goes back to like I really feel like I'm sort of like a movie director, a movie director mentality to making records. You know, and I connected with that. Like when DVDs were big and they would have extras on the DVDs and they would interview the movie directors and the way they would talk about the way they would talk about you know, the, how the, the story and this and that. And it's like, and then I was like, yeah, that's what I do. It's like, yeah, sure. The band are the, write the screenplay, which is, you know, the music and the lyrics, you know, or part or mostly write it. The band are the actors and the celebrities. And I am the guy that figures out how to get the best of all that. Maybe rewrite the end of the story, which would be like rewriting a part if it's not quite right in the script, maybe we're from the script writer. And figuring out how to connect that that music to people emotionally, and and uh, so that's what I do when I when I think I think what what am I doing? What who, how did you how did you host your how did you host your question, Jesse? I was more asking is like what's the process look like when you're right. trying to figure out these directions with a band? Yeah, the process is is I so put on my movie director hat as applies to music. And I sit down and, and we talk about concepts. We talk about what's unique about your band, um, who we're really, who's going to really get this. And, and let's, let's talk about and visualize and come up with, try to come up with unique, unique things and different things that we can do that we're not too different than it alienates people, but different than it gives you identity. Bands need now more than ever identity, more bands, more shit coming out. And I like to make, I like to really have the end game of the record in my mind before I start. And I am the one 
the coach and the one that holds that vision down. Because I'll tell you, those initial ideas are most always the right ones. And mm. You get into making a record and you're playing and you're second guessing yourself. It's very, very easy to lose track. And I, you know, I'm, and I, I'm often keeping things on track and making, you know, making people feel, remember about our talks and our vision and what inspired us before we even got to the studio, you know, or, or what we talked about during pre-production, blah, blah, and keeping the focus. Yeah, on a flip side to me, you know, it's a bummer sometimes when it gets to the end and the label starts thinking, hearing it and, uh, and the band are scared and, and keeping that focus. And, uh, you know, it's it's a bum out sometimes. There's been a few times where bands sort of just like it comes to the end and fear sets in. And I'm, I'm always managing that fear. You know, I'm always mm. always keep, you know, and I'm, I'm the biggest coach inspiring it. But um, the bum out times are when sort of like fear sets in. And then I learned that a given band actually does want to sound like all the other bands or, or too much like this. And I do want to do Mm-hmm. And we had these great, I we had these great things, and it becomes too, it becomes too scary at the end. So let's get into uh, with that. One of the other things I think is really interesting about your discography is you often do a really early seminal record that sets the band's career up, and then you also do work with really established bands who already have a sound. Can you tell me about what you know? A lot of people have a preference can you tell me about what what you're enjoying about each one and things like that yes okay so which one are we gonna start with we're gonna start with the newbie band you go go for it newbie bands are awesome because they're so excited and they're so and they've got these ideas and it's fresh and i get to i get to design those with those bands and again the the ultimate passion the ultimate what i live for is is coming up with what to do and then it's seeing it connect seeing it actually work that's the high that's what i live for when i see a band and i can set up and i think they can they want to do that with me i i'm stoked you know when i'm when i when we come to things i worry that they may be making the wrong decisions or this or that or the communication like i said earlier in the in the podcast things shift towards the end it's, mm-hmm. it's it, you know it's it's it concerns me and and this and that um not that i haven't not that i'm right all the time i totally. i am just right most of the time <laughs> um and then now to all the other question about more legacy bands um this is one thing that um, this is one thing that is a little unique about me. I know a lot of younger producers, um, especially in heavy music, and I think their comfort zone is that you know they're the best musician in the room, and mm. you get a band that you know is like missing parts and this and that, and or, or brag about, uh, I you know they left and I played over their guitar part, and I hear a lot of stories about that, and it's I'm very very much not into that. I'll I will suffer, and I want the the feel and the sound and the character of what comes out of other people. Cause that's what makes my records unique. If I was to mm-hmm. play parts over, or one of my incredibly talented assistants or engineers who all play music, you know, it, you know, I don't want it to be the same and be this. And, 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 and anyway, it's just, Whatever, it's disrespectful. If a band asks me to perform something, I'm happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes they ask me to sing harmonies, you know, because they want a different layer voice. And I oh, love it, happy to do it. But I don't go into this because I've heard producers say, well, you know, 
I tell the band, it's like, we just you know, need the best end result. I'll suffer and work and inspire and, and pump up and coach a band to make them the greatest. And what I get out of that is unique records. Yeah, I, 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 I think this is a great point that I think sadly is uh, getting lost uh, in the, this, these days. I hear you. I hear now. As far as the second part of the question, like accomplished legacy bands, I feel ironically very comfortable working with bands that are way bigger bands than I am a producer and very very accomplished musicians. Like we said earlier, I've you know worked with King Crimson even. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. I think that because. I, and I'm really lucky for that. But I think that's because of how I grew up, because my father was uh, the clarinetist in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. So he's basically wow. one of the most accomplished musicians. You know, to, to be in the New York Philharmonic, you have to be one of the most accomplished musicians. So I grew up with classical music and incredible perfor- musician performers all around me. I would go to, you know, all these symphonies and get to go on stage and meet all the other players. So I'm like naturally comfortable around extremely talented, proficient musicians, and I'm not wigged to sort of give them my outside, stupider, cool kid opinion on that. I really mm. love those relationships. So, you know, I'm very comfortable in that situation, and I'm very happy that I got someone that can play incredibly better than me and do what they do and and allows me i appreciate it to sort of have an outside outside view to sort of say hey you know that's brilliant but what if you know what if we did this what if you know maybe that's too busy what if we did this like and and work with them and get to get to be a vehicle to work with their talent i love that too and i'm very comfortable in that situation actually you know, I don't have a fear or issue of telling someone a bigger band than I am or a super more accomplished musician than I am to, to suggest and direct and have an opinion. Um, I'm very cool. I'm very comfortable with that. That's how I, that gets me to those kind of bands. Nice. Uh, so with that, I think that there's like that thing of though that when people see you work with King Crimson, they're like, oh, I can't afford, afford that guy. I guess with your new state, is that like one of the ways you're able to work with the more younger bands is now having like a space where you can do everything? That's why I built the barn. Yeah, mm. that's why I built the barn, because, you know, I was able to build this without debt. I was able to sort of, wow. you know, we sold our very expensive house in New Jersey and we came here. We were able to buy this all without a mortgage and build, you know, like, you know, a, a really like an, an epic sort of rock and roll fantasy, incredible room to play in, you know, not like in the back of someone's house. I got to do that and build it and not even be in debt for it and invite people out here for this feeling and experience. And I and by coming out here to outside of Austin, I've been able to do this in a way that I can I can totally afford. That's right. It's a great atmosphere for, for people, and therefore be able to, you know, direct my producer career creatively in the directions I think that's it's, it's good for me. You know, you know, maybe sometimes be able to say no when i know it might be the wrong match Mm. just like what's the next job what's the next job what's the next job find the right things and you know i just dude i just want i want every record i make to win Mm. my fear is when that doesn't happen you know i want to i want to know i want to know that i'm set up to do the right records and and the relationship's right and and it's going to win and it's going to it's going to stand out 
So lowering my, you know, it's really slick. I got to come out here, build something that throws you back to being in a huge epic studio and it's paid for. And I pay nothing for this to, to for taxes on this land. Mm. And um, I can, I can uh, adapt to the current world of what budgets are now because they're very different. They're very, totally. you know, and that's what it is. So it's like, what am I going to do? Quit? No, I can't quit. This is what I am, record producer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I said to you earlier in the podcast, I was a record producer before I knew what a record producer was. <laughs> a record <laughs> producer. So, so, you know, that's it. <laughs> nice. So we got to adapt and change for the new economy and the new fucking scene, which is has its own really interesting things to talk about. Totally. So let's get into, you hinted at uh, something before. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? Yeah. I'm good with that. I'm very good with that. One thing that is unique about us producers is we have to be many things. It's it's not common our brains because we have to be mm. we have to be really technical and really mathematical, and then we have to be really a creative side and this and that. Understand that, and then not all of us are, but the good ones are. We have to be a great politician and a great coach and a great inspirer. You know, so I use that. I use that part of my personality, sort of, sort of like when we disagree on something. It's sort of like you know, we get to quickly try. I call it, you know, painting with broad strokes. We all get to quickly try what we're thinking, and you know, I will sort of like, I will like, I will heavily suggest and and animate and inspire and and sometimes yell in a way that's just hilarious about what I'm feeling and this and that. And bands just have a great time with it and want to try it. And it's about creating this atmosphere. And so we try it. We everyone gets to give give it a fair try. And in return it doesn't work out. It doesn't go down. I'm not I'm not uh, a dictator. You know, it's not my I'm not in I'm it's not my band, you know, this and that. But it works so well. Like, you know, getting it right, talking to a band, knowing you're the right match makes that happen a lot less. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know a thousand stories of bands that have been with the wrong producers and it's gone horrible. But it's, you know, having the right conversations before, you know, all that's going to happen less, you know, and you have to you have to go in there. And, you know, when I meet a band, I say we're working, I, I say to them, listen, you know, thank you for the flattery on my discography or thanks for this. But I, I want I tell them I want you to know that I still have to earn your trust. You know, mm. I have suggestions to make, but it's not just that I can just make a lot of suggestions that I make ones that you really love, that you really, really connect with you. So I have to go in there and establish trust, you know, really early. And then these confrontations become easier because it's like I'm gratiated into the band is, you know, sometimes I feel like a band member or they they make me feel like it. And that's wonderful. You work through it. And I, I usually get my way. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't always. And if I don't always, it's nothing to get bummed about. And once in a while, dude, once in a while, Jesse, we try this and that. And you're like, and I, and I go, hey, you know what? Your idea was better. Rock. Yeah. You rule. And we move on. Very rad. Uh, so let's get into some quick thoughts about how you feel about the modern production tools that are at our disposal, since I know the audience loves this stuff. Yes, let's do it. Do amps, <laughs> simulators and reamping. Does that have a role in your productions? I did it super early on, as soon as it was invented and and so on and so forth. I use reamping, yes, as a creative tool for many things, but I try to not 
I try to really, really, really get the guitar tone going in, but I always have the DI, I always can reamp. Uh, simulator plugins, I, as far as like basic rhythm tones and main tones, I, I don't, I don't like them. I, I really love my collection of amps and this and that. This is where they're cool. When you want to use them and flip through presets for things that don't sound like guitar. Like when you, I love when you can flip through presets and they, they've got some wacky filter or crazy delay or turning your guitar into sense. That's when I go to them when it's like I want to use the guitar and it not sound like a guitar. I like that. And then we have to talk about this. Hmm. There's what's going on these days. And that's what these model things are doing, like these Kempers or Axe Effects. And yep. I hate them because they're actually really good. <laughs> and they're starting to com- they're starting to compete with what I can do with my amps and my microphones and my techniques. So I haven't I don't own one yet, but I will tell you guiltfully when I'm recording a session I doubt a really good guitar sound. I call my buddy with a Kemper. I would go, hey, dude, we come over here and model this for me because maybe I'll have a Kemper one day and I'll want my tones. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. No, I, I think I think we're about two years away from those being uh, those sounding perfect. Yeah. Right yeah. now they sound good, very good, but not the same. They're going to be amazing in another two years or so. Which goes back to the theory of evolution, right? Yes. Let's get your thought on uh, MIDI programmed drums. This is interesting mm-hmm. because I pride myself by I work very hard at work very hard at creating techniques to not layer drums, to have very natural drums and compete with how good drums can sound by layering drums with samples. I work mm-hmm. really hard at that and I really I really appreciate when I can do that for the right band. Right? And this is where this conversation is going because a band like Clutch, a band like Crobot, a band like mm-hmm. Great Organics Bands, a band like Mastodon, you know, it it's wrong. It's creatively a bad decision to turn those into sample sounding drums. But so and then on another band with another concept, um, it's it's dumb to do it too natural because maybe it's a war story band and maybe they're younger. And to them, the sound of current music, they've been taught um, they've been taught like drums sound like this. And when they hear or when they hear organic stuff, it's it's not maybe Culturally, it's not right for them. And maybe mm-hmm. organic sounds, so that's, um, that's the sound of, that my parents listen to. Mm. Their sound may, th- this band's audience, their sounds may be layered drums. And then, it, therefore, it's the wrong, it's being a bad producer. It's the wrong treatment to go, to go, um, you know, too organic. Too, too, too raw, yeah. Can I, can I tell you a really interesting story that taught me this? Because it's, I, 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 of course you can. So I produced four, I produced four year strong record, a couple four year yes. strong records, right? So they had their first record. I don't know what it's called, but it was done real cheap. And, and, you know, the, the kid who produced it, or whatever, you know, he probably couldn't record drums. So, yeah, it's, it's a very fake sounding record. It was all sampled. The first one, I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I know the kid did it. And, um, and I love them. I, I, I just loved everything about this band. I saw them, I saw them as this. And this is what we discussed when we discussed our concepts for the record. I was like, you guys, you guys are like poppy, but you're like, you're burly, tattooed dudes. And you're like, it's like, you know, you like have an attitude, you have an attitude of like a band like every time I die. So it's like, you guys should be, you guys, we should be the poppier every time I die. That's what we, that's what we both thought. That's what we discussed mm. and conversated about. You know, you could, you're an incredible band. You could, 
can cross tribes. You can you can tour with these heavier bands, and you're so much poppier than them with your vocals. They actually write metal riffs in a major key. <laughs> <laughs> <What's that? laughs> so, so it's, that's actually it's like a good point. So it's like so it's like guys. So we should be, we should be the popular every time I die. So so it's a little more dangerous. Blah blah. blah. So so check it out, Jesse. So we produced the record. Oh, it's a great record. Yeah, it's a, it's. A, I, I always joke. It's um, probably the record I've uh, exercised to the most in my life. Wow, dude. Thanks. But let me tell you the story. So I mixed it, and the drums were very organic. We're really going for every time I die type of feel, you know, raw and beat up, a poppy, poppy vocals. And um, you know, you know when you like pre-release like one song, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I like, you know, like on Facebook or whatever to set up for the record. And pre-release one song, and and I never normally do this. I never normally go freaking. Facebookness and read comments by like <laughs> yes, that fucking talk shit. It's not me. But anyway, this first single came out and I read that and some kids were saying, wow, this is really good, but the drums sound unmixed. <laughs> and that's funny. And or the yeah, the and and I just realized that, wow, these kids, it's not they think it's unmixed. And what it was is that it wasn't replaced with samples. That to them, drum production was for 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 four years strong fan, right? Mm-hmm. For them, the production was a good job of sample replacement or sample layering, right? Hmm. And 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 it was an instant slap in the face. It was like, okay, that was the wrong. I was that's the wrong application. And I went back, tr- mixed, tried mixing the entire record. And put program drums, and that was like the big. That was a big turning point for me to realize. Wait a second, you're designing these things, whatever it is, whether you like it or not, whether it's like drum replacement or natural drums, you're designing these things to impress the audience that's going to get it, that's going to buy it, that's going to bring it up to another level. So you make records for the right audiences as being the sociologist of music. So. Well, that's where I learned a hard way on that big time and mm. did do more replacement and the record did killer and it was awesome. Yeah. Good story. Yippee. yippee. It's fucking great. <laughs> nice. How about, do you master your own records? Yeah. Um, I, can. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. With the, uh, the annoying tinge to it. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Yeah. I, yeah. I can. And I do it. I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. Um, I was doing it. Again, another thing like I was experimenting with really, really early on before it's more common now. And um, but I do and and I, I totally can. I do a good job of it. But um, I would pre- I do prefer I get really happy when there's a budget and so, and the label and the band or whoever they want to work with an outside mastering guy. I prefer that. I actually really prefer that because I have a guy that I just love and trust. His name is Paul Logos. And um, I just trust him so much. And he is so amazing and thorough and and whatever i could try to do he can just do better you know very cool yeah but i mean that i think that that's the thing is that when you find that right fit that's what they do yeah yeah like i said paul logan said and he's got he's got he's he's not just a tech mastering guy he's a very creative person really listens to the music like you know really looks at the band like i do the way my attitude is about things so yeah, so I nice. definitely prefer not not mastering, but certainly I can. Of course, I can. How long, on average? And I know this is a tough one with the different types of things you do, but what's an average amount of time it takes to produce a song, and then an average amount of time that it takes to mix a song for you? So mixing, I put a lot of 
I put a lot of time and energy into the first mix because I'm making new creative discoveries on that first mix. First of all, it's setting up the mix, mm-hmm. prepping it and organizing it prior. And then there's, and then I do tons of experimentation and how am I going to do this a little different? What's cool for this? And a lot, I always sort of try to pick a first mix that's a good average of the record, you know? And I spend my, I really spend my time on that. I will admit that that could even go up to like three days of Wow. Getting the first mix and going back and within that time, going back and forth with the band. Right. Let's let's like get this first one right. Let's really let's figure this out. Let's figure out our thing about it and let's make it special. And then the following mixes could be one to one and a half a day, meaning like mm. you know, out, of two, out of like two, two days, I could have three mixes done. Meaning, you know, mm. that's what I mean by one and a half from there. Yeah. Now, part two to the question. How long does it take to record a band? It depends on the band. Mm. I have two. I could. I put. You know. Let's let's put bands into two basic categories, right? Bands who play as a band and can be very proficient musicians, and I love working with those bands. And then I call it. I don't want to. Don't want to diss. I call it like data entry recording. Yes, that's a really good good name for it. But that is the truth to it. Yeah, yeah. So I get a, I, a lot of those bands really like me. The data, you know, the data entry bands. They really like me. And when they're really good, I really like them. You know, so that takes a lot longer, and it has to because that it's the art of it's the art of editing. It's the art of of using the computer as a creative tool. Then there's also what I very very much love is working with. Great playing organic bands like Clutch or Crowbot, you know, or this band that I'm about to produce now that's coming in next. Who are incredible. They literally, the band sounds like a record when they play live. It's mind blowing. Three part harmonies and and that record's gonna track really fast. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's what they want. That's what I want for them. That will make the best result. Of course, I'll be editing parts and I'll be, you know, looping parts like a cool kid. But <laughs> it's mm. all gonna be recorded initially as these whole this this organic group coming and playing together. And again, let's go back quickly back to the studio. That's what the machine job's all about. It's the ultimate environment for bands that want to play together, for sitting in a room around each other, right? And that includes me. I'm out there with them because I'm in the same room and want to feel good, play together. It's 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 that that's the capability of the studio has the ultimate place for a band playing together and hearing each other perfectly well. And that's what that works that's what works for that and makes yeah, makes a those can go much faster. Nice. You know? How about one of the best moments you've had in the studio? What are the best moments I've had in the studio? Oh, let me just say like this. What are the best record-making experiences? One of them was, one that really just comes to mind was the unexpected, you know, a band that comes in. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't champion them in my mind as much. And then when we got together and worked as a unit, it was amazing experience. That would be the Boys Night Out record that I Oh, I really like that record. Oh, cheers, man. Cheers. So, and here, here's a quick story on that Call Ferrets was the label. And Call Ferret had every time, he wanted me to make Every Time I Die's record, which was Gutter Phenomenon. And then Carl goes to me, look, machine, all right, you know, we want you to do this Every Time I Die record, but I've got this other record, Boys Night Out, and I want to do it like a package. Like, I want you to go one to the next, and I want you to do both. And check out this band. You know, they're cool. They're in Canada, Canada blah, 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 whatever. And yeah, I checked them out, and I checked them out, and I flew up there, this and that, and then... 
I wasn't expecting anything about what was going to happen. Um, that's what makes it one of the best experiences that like that turned into one of the most incredible collaborative creative experiences of my life. Um, it was mm. I, I just fell. I met the band, started working with the band and just fell in love with with what they're doing, we made this concept record and the things we came up with and pre-thought and then followed through. There were like there were moments where we were we we were literally both crying while singing certain lyrics, and they were just like incredible happy moments. And and um, that's it. That was yeah. That just sticks out. Is and 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 again, it, it came as a complete surprise. It wasn't until hmm. I actually got in the studio and worked with them. I had no idea what was going to come, like what they had done, what they had prepped and done from the previous record to what we were about to do and how they brought me in as a as a bandmate. And it was incredible. And and yeah, and as a result, those records come back to you. It always mm. it always works. You know, people people mention that. It's really fun to hear years, years later, hey the Poison Light Out record. That was awesome. It's you know, those make the best records sometimes. That's rad. Conversely, how about one of the worst moments you had and what you learned from it? One of the worst moments I had in the studio is what's not good for me is uh, bands that write music and guitar parts on software before they learn to play it. I've had a few younger modern bands that sort of, uh, you know, their band doesn't operate as a unit. And uh, they sort of program their guitars with modern uh, drums with modern tools. And we get to the studio and everyone has to learn that. So it's a double horrible because not only do they have to learn to use it and it's hard to work with them as a band and create and direct them, people have to learn to play it. And then, oh yeah, by the way, some of those things that you tapped out on a computer when you actually play it live in a room don't translate as, as cool. <laughs> This is becoming a, 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 a trend. Like this is like a common answer to this question. I've yet to experience this one, but this this sounds like hell. Mm. Yeah, it's really it's a bad place to be in. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Don't don't come to me. It's <laughs> <laughs> that. Hey, it's good. It's good. It's good to know who you don't want to work with. Sometimes uh, that sounds no, like hell. Not your guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not your guy for that. <laughs> so let's get into some of what makes you as a person who loves music what's a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect oh man the first one that comes to mind is the first raging at the machine record mm. because that that you know that was a life changer remember my background is sort of i came from i was a guitar player you know, I grew up, my first jobs and my first work was doing hip hop stuff with beats because that's what I had. I had a sampler and a computer. So here comes Rage Against the Machine. I remember I would go, I would go to these cool like indie dance nights, like the limelight where like you would dance. <laughs> a mixture of like public enemy and like chili peppers that you could dance to. So it was like heavy music or like Run DMC's track that had guitar in it. And it was like, that was a big part of my scene for so so there i was at uh dancing at the limelight and all this i'm dancing all of a sudden the pa is pumping and the shit goes fuck you i won't do what you told me fuck you i won't do what you told me fuck and i didn't walk to the dj booth i ran to the dj booth mm -hmm. like, what is this <laughs> he's like all the way up there i'm like what is this <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't out yet. It was um, 
they were just the album wasn't out yet. They were just toting it around as like mm. uh, you know, like a white label or like a pre-release to DJs. And he goes, "It's raised against the machine." And shouted down, "It's raging against the machine!" It was incredible. And then weeks later, I before they the record came out, I got to see them at uh, a little venue in New York with maybe like three hundred people, two hundred, wow. and packed, and no one could move. And and uh, it was it was spiritual experience. Yeah, you know, it was it was very me. So that's rad. So that one comes first, I guess. And in, in your question of of what are my favorite records or what is what has made me who I am before that as a younger kid. Yeah. I was, so the next question is, is give me five records that have sh- had a big impact on you musically. All right. So let's move next to like, let's go earlier in life. Right. So mm-hmm. as a younger kid, I think like and the way I have to think of this question is to think of because it's so hard to ask someone this question because there's so many records that you like and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, what do you choose to save your ass five? Mm-hmm. So the, way I, the way I think is like, Okay, what records have I spun so much that I literally wore them out? I like something drew me back to them. That's how I'm kind of kind of figuring out how to answer your question. What have I how do I pick five? Like, what have I spun to death? Mm-hmm. And what keeps pulling me back? So so that back as a kid it would probably be Kiss Alive One, you know? And um, that sort of blueprinted me for my sort of natural heavy pop sensibility because Kiss uh, as a kid, you know, that would be like a younger uh, a younger kid's version of Slipknot, you know. But but what mm-hmm. were, even though they spit fire and vomited blood, like they were really just writing pop pop rock songs. So and that's partly what blueprinted me for my natural song and pop sensibility. Here's one sort of you know in college age. That is an indie record that's super special. That's a band called School of Fish. I remember that record, yeah. Dude, yeah do you, oh, cool. Dizzy, I told you we had a shit done in college. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, they, they, they made a record called Human Cannonball. Mm-hmm. I spun and spun and spun and played on cassette and played and played and played and and it just connected with me so so well. It still stands up and it's just it's it's lo-fi and cool melodic vocals and it's fucking sick and let's let's say let's say classics you know pink floyd of course pink you know you know that i spun the the wall and wish you were here dark side of the moon endlessly i can't tell you i've listened to those records thousands of times you know i guess the question right you were stranded on an island and you had one band. <laughs> I guess it'd be Pink Floyd. I could like if I only had to just listen to them for the till I died, that would suck. But I would certainly I'd probably I'd pick Pink Floyd's whole catalog. Mm. That's <laughs> um, pro- it's just pro- pro- probably smart. You get a lot of diversity, a lot of lot, lot, lot of interesting stuff in there to explore. Yeah. And I think we're up to number five now. Mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, dude. You know. Nice. Led Zeppelin four was the one I played the most and you know. As a guitar player and isn't it just ridiculous how led zeppelin still sounds relevant today it's it's insane it's insane sometimes i've i've had that same thought <laughs> it's like so unbelievable yeah yes nice how about three favorite producers well, we already talked about rick rubin mm-hmm. want to be in life <laughs> so as far as like old classic guys you know it's rick because he's He's incredible at doing everything. Bringing it over to, say, someone who's more recent, super fan of DJ Danger Mouse. Mm, you know yeah. 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 He's, um, you know, he has, he's, his, he has incredible hip hop sensibility and he's worked with, he's done things like with bands like Black Keys and things you yeah. expect and, and turn them into massive 
things. And he does lots of looping and takes organic sounds and does them in a hip hop way. And I'm a huge fan of what he does. And it's like he really proved himself. His story is he came out with the Gray album. Remember that? Yep. Right. So for for the people listening that don't know what the Gray album was. So the Gray album was like a mashup. That's what he came out with. So he basically took Jay-Z's The Black record and the Beatles the white record and mixed it and then all of a sudden he was in Rolling Stone magazine and everyone had to talk about him for a second so and some of that was brilliant and some of those tracks weren't that brilliant it was just a thing Mm. but everyone was talking about it and then so what's going to happen you know so he's going to get offered a record so some some people do kooky things get the spotlight they're given other records and now now it's the test are you a real producer can you do it again or did you just happen to fall on something that was hot and trendy and you're given another bend and you fell? So this guy comes around and just scores. I mean, like when the gray album came, I was like, okay, great gimmick. And then this guy comes around and does the, the fucking black keys and does the yep. way it's so cool that everyone loves. And then he goes another one and another one and another one. So I'm very impressed with him. Yeah, for sure. And then the last one I would say is like, I'm a big Dave Sardi fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The king. I love that, you know, I love how dangerous he is. And I I love emulating a lot of his style. And um, he's produced a lot of my favorite bands. And he can do a heavy band and not be afraid to smash this crap out of him. And then he can do like the Ting Tings, which is like a vocal girl group and apply, apply, take program stuff, but still apply a super beefed up analog, dirgy, in your face thing. So he's got it going on that Dave Sardi. Yeah, he's one of those few people that um, you know how like uh, for most people they say like uh, no one listens to records with good production if the songs suck. I'm like, well, Dave Sardi records. Even if I don't like the songs, I can still just sit there and analyze the kick drum and what he chose to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) How about your favorite record that's come out in recent years? Here we go again. (laughs) The 1975. Oh wow! There you go. Yeah. Um. That's one of them, because we're talking about recent years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're talking yeah. about recent time. I'm I'm gay for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you and me both. Incredible, you know. I love everything about that. I love it was how it was different, and and the accent, and the subject matter, and the lyrics, and and again, it's just I judge I judge these questions you ask me by because there's you can it's, it's you can think of so many bands, and you're asking. Mm-hmm. You're asking for two, so it's like so. I just have to say, what just keeps pulling me back? What mm-hmm. like it or not? 1975 keeps pulling me back, and here's another. And here's another one, which could be risky to say, but I, I, we have to keep it real here on this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, of recent things, I am blown away with Skrillex. Oh yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm blown away. I knew Sonny back in the day when he was from first to last, and he was as a child, he was a great programmer when he was in his heavy band. Because mm-hmm. um, I was doing all the programming then for heavy bands, right? That was my part. Yeah, what he's done with dubstep, he wasn't the first to do it. But mm-hmm. when he came along, he did it in a way that was so much more musical. It, with all the changing sounds and all the rad, distorted synths. And he did it in a way, and all the chaos, you know, uh, that he he organized the chaos in a way that was so 
incredibly musical. It, it's just, it's, I find it amazing. And I don't know how to do that exactly. Like it made me want to learn something new. Like, it, you know, it's, it, 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 which is what totally inspired me about it. I was like, wow, I'm not even sure how to do that. And, and it's so well done. And in addition to like, he, the way he, you know, the way he arranges his songs compared to the other people in dubstep, it's like he, he started the, he started the fucking rock and roll breakdowns in, mm-hmm. into his dubstep. And, and he, be, what he became to me is the new rock and roll. Like his, his shows would be like rock shows. It's mm-hmm. massive. So I give him so much credit for a new artist. Uh, I, I, that was, I, I often say to people, like when people are like, when were you going to get the next Nirvana? I'm like, he already happened. His name is Skrillex. You just don't pay attention to anything but rock. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like that, that, that was the the next Nirvana and that's what killed that's off a lot of things. I'm going to say, I'm going to steal that from you. Do you- <laughs> nice. Have you seen, uh, as time goes on, as looking through your discography, it seems like you've done a lot of indie to major to DIY stuff. What have you seen in the changing advantages between going through a DIY thing versus an indie versus a major? What, what are you seeing in the changes in that these days? I'm not. I'm not equipped to talk about the you know the business side as as, as nearly what you would be or a lot of guys. But what I'm observing is is the way smart new bands or other legacy bands that are out of their deals are actually making this choice. When I grew up, that was it. You had signed to a record label. That was your goal and that that's all it was. And I I've changed my attitude, you know. If you mm. if you had we had done this podcast five even five years ago, I would say I'm no, I'd be like, I'm not really interested in working with unsigned bands. If you ask me today, it's a totally different story. I've done two records by bands that are successful bands. No, sorry, three records. Bands that are successful bands, touring, merch selling, money making, and they of course have been offered record deals and have chosen not to. This is this phenomenon is on fire right now in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing this happen at such a fast velocity. And in the young kids and how smart they are and how they have access to information on the internet and, and this growing fashion of choosing, actually choosing to, to do it on your own. And there's these label services companies that are dev- they're coming out where you can actually, it's easier and easier to figure out ways to do your own campaigns and do stuff yourself and the bands benefit. And it doesn't, it may not necessarily suffer from blowing you up, especially with a new band. You know, major labels know what to do better with pop bands, with country bands, with bands that, you know, already are big. Major labels uh, don't really know how to break young bands, you know, aren't going to risk, aren't going to invest and risk the money. So it's mind blowing to me, Jesse, like what I'm seeing, this shift of, 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 and a lot of these bands, by the way, have really smart managers or really agent and they have all these things in place that they can make money and, and, and choose this route. So it's like in a way the manager has become the record label. You know, this is that 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 is definitely my observation as well. But yeah, it's it was, it's stunning to see the iTunes charts now of how much uh, each week, especially even in heavy music, it's really shifting. And it was like that for dance music forever, but it really is. Right. It's finally coming over into the world that we're in. Yeah, and it's. I think let's predict on this podcast. Okay. What's the date, dude? It's 
It is 310-17. March 10th. Let's predict right now. Let me make a note. I'm going to give you a call in one year from now. Mm-hmm. Let's call you up. Sounds great to me. See where this has gone in one year. And I think it's going to be even growing and growing and growing. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the music world we grew up in, but there's um, a lot of fat that can be trimmed. Right. And at the end of the day, people need to make money. Like, it's, you know, bands can only do it for so long when they're young if they're not making money. So bands deserve to make money. You know, they do. And that's what that's the motivator of this. Like they, they can do it themselves and they can earlier on make more money. And that's fair, you know, for anyone in any world, in any job, on any planet of any universe. Right. Yeah, I'm to- to- totally with you. Yeah. Very cool. So let's let you plug away and tell us about what you've been working on and what you have coming up that you can discuss. I just finished a record for a band called Prestimico. Ah, just like our last. R- 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 yeah, run that run that name by me again. Press Timigo. No, press to Miko. M E. Ah, okay. And like we were just talking about, this is a band that currently to this date have chosen to not have a record deal. Chosen to not have a record deal. They're a UK band. They tour. They have a great manager. They sell merch. They pull. They pull kids, and uh, they, they're a fan of mine. And I love their music. They're a three-piece. They're heavy, and they can be tricky and technical. But there's what's awesome is a. They very much reminds me of a band like Muse. There's they're mm. three-piece. They all sing lead vocal. They all sing perfect harmonies over their heavy music, and it's it's absolutely it's absolutely brilliant. They've had incredible awards of their previous record, like best best new album of the year, this and that. And we've gone and just made such an incredible step up record that I just can't wait for the world to hear. Right. So and yeah, and um, they'll they're deciding now. They're deciding. I love this. They're deciding now. We'll let people hear it. We'll labels hear it, and we'll decide if we should go with a label. If a label presents us with something that makes sense and can can help our career make money, we'll do it. If not. They're completely happy to put it out on themselves like their last record. And that's um, that's incredible. That's an amazing new phenomenon. Yeah. And the next what uh, next thing I have coming on is coming up is a band I'm super excited about. They're called Blue Water Highway Band. And I'm stoked because here's another scenario where it's a a different style band than you would normally think I would do. And it's wonderful that they know my discography and, and saw what you saw. They saw that, oh, this guy does different stuff. And they're different because for me, they're they're very different because they're sort of like an Americana type of band, like a Mumford Sonsy, mm. but, but funkier with more soulful vocals. And we talked and we have like incredible concepts of where to take that. So I'm I'm really excited and I'm a little nervous because I always get nervous about creating creating the new cool and cracking the code for this band and and you know hopefully you know getting a little more into just a new a, a, a new genre like a mm. um, this indie indie really indie rock and Americana thing so they're coming up next and they're coming in soon we're here now getting ready for them very very rad anything else yes I just want to give thanks and respect throughout the years to all my interns, assistants, people who have helped me with making records. The interns with these kids that come around to help, I'm always so psyched that they want to hang out with me and help me do stuff. And uh, I like forget like how it is such a help to them and what they get out of it. 
the priceless lessons and knowledge they learn to break into this industry. I want to give shout outs to a few of my old interns that have gone on to be incredible, amazing producers. My first intern, Will Putney, he is a member of Noise Creators as well. I'm so proud, man. He's done bands that I personally love so much, like Straight From The Path, North Lane, and um, the new, the latest Every Time I Die. It is my favorite. No, it's my second favorite Every Time I Die record, aside from the one I did, of course. <laughs> to Zach Cervini. Zach, I got Zach really early, super young. He walked in, and I just knew that kid was going to make it big. We spent a lot of time together, taught a lot of things. Eventually, Zach wanted to move to LA. I sent him over to Feldy, and those guys are killing it and unstoppable. And to a few engineers I worked with early in their career, like Josh Wilbur, Jeff Giuliano, and every time I hear about another successful record from any of you guys, I feel so proud and really amped that I was a little part of what got you there. Noise creators, thank you for being another bitch-ass thing to help the emerging, amazing, new record industry. Lastly, to any artists, bands, listening to my podcast, thank you for checking me out. Believe, always believe in yourself. And remember to find those things that make you unique as an artist. Blow those things up and pour them out like a bitch. And when things stress you out, remember that you love music. That's why you got into this in the first place. So just remember to keep loving music and you'll be all right. Thank you. <laughs>